Hello and welcome to CEO Stories, the podcast from the Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce, where I delve into the minds of some of the region's leading and up-and-coming chief executives. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Denmer from SF Recruitment. Hello, Sarah. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Now, to start us off, just tell us a little bit about you and your business. Um, Yeah, so I'm Sarah Demmer. I've been the chief exec of SF Recruitment since 2020. We are a 24-year-old business, so um, the business was set up um, long before I came on board. Um, We're focused on uh, finance and technology recruitment within the Midlands. That's always been our, our core focus. And um, we've grown over the years and gone through a cycle of being a startup through to a growth business um, to now being a much more established um, business within the Midlands and also one of the largest professional services recruitment firms in the area today. Fantastic. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing your journey because obviously attracting, retaining people in the current environment couldn't be more topical. But before we get into that, when you think back, are there any moments that really stand out to you as particularly defining in your career? Um, yeah, I think um, I'm sure we'll we'll come on to some of this um, later. Um, part a big part of the uh, defining feature of my career has been being thrown into things that I wasn't necessarily qualified for. So um, I started a career in mergers and acquisitions, fresh from a, a French and German literature degree. I became CFO of a business uh, of our parent company, actually Ignata, without any accountancy training. Um, I now run a recruitment business, having never been a, a, a recruiter myself. So um, it's something that over the years I've really had to hone in terms of, um, you know, knowing when to bring in experts and knowing when to trust your own gut. And I think the, the thing that really stands out to me that was probably quite career defining for me over the years was when I'd just become CFO, uh, I was very, very conscious I wasn't a qualified accountant. I'd been in and around financial services. I'd been in the M&A markets for a long time. So I was very financially literate. But somebody asked me to look at something, um, a reconciliation that is typically something that an accountant would be looking at. And I kept shirking this and saying, oh, I've checked with the accountant and they said it was fine. And this individual um, kept asking me, have you looked at it yourself? Have you looked at it yourself? And I kept just repeating that the accountants confirmed it's fine, it's fine. Because I didn't trust myself that I would have any value to add to that situation. When I finally got hold of it and looked at it myself, within about five seconds, I spotted a multitude of issues that it suddenly dawned on me why this person had kept asking me to look at it myself. Yes, it was an accounting thing. Yes, it's something that typically would be handled by a professional. But in that moment, I understood the value that somebody with, an, with a different perspective who comes at things from a different lens can add to a business situation. And I think that that thing that I used to see as a disadvantage coming into something without necessarily the same background as other people typically have, I've come to now see that as a real strength and something that I really play on both in my own career, but also to give my people the confidence that they can do new things and they can push themselves out of their comfort zone and be successful. So let's go back now. Let's go right back to the beginning of your journey before you'd learned that lesson, before you'd started thinking actually having that fresh perspective, that different point of view is a a good way to be. What was your first ever job? So my first ever job was selling double glazing on the phone when I was 16. Um, I worked for Safe Style Windows. Um, I did that for about three years just to pay my way through college. Um, I then worked at Pizza Hut. I was a terrible waitress. And then I went on to work on the counter at NatWest, which was one of my favorite ever student jobs. 
Um, but my first professional job um, was uh, at Deloitte. I was in the M&A strategy team, um, and that was my first job straight out of university. And what made you want to go into that? Did you sort of know what you wanted to do? Or was it one of those things that often happen at that point in life? You just end up somewhere. Yeah, I did not have a clue. I went to university um, knowing that I wanted to study something that I enjoyed because I assumed that that would mean I would do well in my degree. So I did a, a literature degree. And at the end of that course, um, all I could really imagine was that I was either going to work as a translator or in the EU. That was kind of the extent of my imagination as to what you could do with a languages degree. And then I'm sure like lots of people, you know, we had the milk round at university. Um, we went to all the stalls and somebody explained to me about this thing called management consultancy. Um, there were a few little trials of um, come and get involved in some problem solving and I remember I won a Kit Kat for the problem that I solved and skipped out of there feeling like I'd really enjoyed it and um, yeah one thing led to another and I found myself starting there on the grad scheme a few months later. And did you have any inkling at that stage that you might one day want to run your own business? Uh, no not at all. So what happened next? You're on the grad scheme how did your career develop from there? Yeah, so um, I was um, fortunate or unfortunate, depending on how you look at it, at the time to have been allocated into the mergers and acquisitions team. So it's 2007, it's pre-financial crisis, everybody's still running around like they're on Wolf of Wall Street. And I got thrown into this world, not really knowing anything about business or mergers and acquisitions or really how any of it worked. And it was a real baptism of fire. Um, in that in that team, you know, you would routinely work till 2, 3 a.m. in the morning, it was very much in the days when, you know, you don't go to bed after that. You know, there's a bar across the road that's still open and all the bankers are in there. And, you know, you're kind of back in the office the next day at 8 a.m. So it was a real kind of roller coaster of, um, you know, hard work, long hours, uh, learning the ropes, but going through the learning curve incredibly quickly because you were just working quite often twice as many hours as most other people. So you just learn twice as fast. And so um, I did that for seven years. Obviously, you know, the financial crash came along and, you know, kind of dampened things. Um, the M&A team sat within the wider strategy practice within Deloitte anyway. So I got to do uh, quite a nice mix, actually, of just pure strategy work, supporting everything from um, NHS hospitals to toilet manufacturers with, you know, what, what are their growth plans going to be? What are the different options that they have? And then doing a lot of private equity backed um, M&A work as well. So, yeah, it was seven great years, made some great friends, learned, learned a lot. And because of the nature of a role like that, where you work with, um, you know, multiple different businesses in the space of a few months, all across different sectors, it's like doing a mini MBA. You get exposed to such a huge cross section of the business market. Um, and one of my very early clients was a recruitment business. Um, and that was how I first started to get, get into recruitment. And then over the seven years that I was at Deloitte, um, I worked actually with quite a number of recruitment businesses, a number of them um, more than once. And so by the time that I finished up there, I was the kind of in-house resident recruitment expert for that you know, strategy and M&A area. And also healthcare was another one of my um, specialist areas. And what was it about recruitment particularly that you, you found so interesting that sort of got that hook early on? Um, I'll be really honest, um, nothing. Uh, I was I was allocated to a recruitment client and um, I was the only person that then had that knowledge when the second recruitment client came along. So it was a real accident, um, but one that when I then entered the recruitment sector myself, so when I left Deloitte and moved into 
um, the, uh, in the current investor of SF, I originally went to work there. Uh, when I moved into that world, I found that I clicked with it quite quickly. Um, so it was a real happy accident that um, I'd, I'd kind of naturally ended up developing a skill set in something that, that gelled quite well with my personality. And I said, I'm always surprised if someone says they had an actual five year plan and ended up where they thought they <laughs> would <laughs> and built it all on purpose. So it's all these happy accidents, I think, that lead to such interesting career paths. Um, so you went from being an advisory to win in-house. Mm-hmm. How did you know when the right time was to make that shift? Was it, again, sort of a happy accident, the right opportunity came along? No, I think I always just thought that I would just kind of climb the ladder at Deloitte and I would go on to become a partner. And then one day I just I just didn't want to anymore. Um, I think it probably had a lot to do with I just um, got engaged. I was not far off turning 30. So, you know, that always kind of makes you stop and think, doesn't it? Um, and I was just about to get to senior manager level. And I think when you're on the cusp of, of entering you know, the senior ranks of a business, when it's the only business you've ever worked in as an adult, it does make you just step back. But I just I just felt like I wanted a change. I, I kind of looked around to see, you know, what could be next, um, found a great opportunity. And so, uh, yeah, I jumped in and took it. So tell me more about that opportunity. Um, yeah, so the job was to um, work for the now investor of um, SF Group, uh, SF Recruitment, um, who is James Khan, and I came in as his head of M&A, and my job was to go and buy some recruitment businesses, so that's what I did. Obviously, you know, I found a nice continuation from what I'd been doing before as an advisor, I was now doing it for myself. Um, and then once I'd finished buying businesses, I was then promoted up to CFO. So the job was then to you know, create a group out of those businesses, um, create some financing, some infrastructure um, and something that would have real kind of tangible shareholder value. Um, and then I got promoted up to UK CEO of Ignata, which was the group that we created. And then after a couple of years of doing that group role, I discovered that what really floats my boat is getting into something, um, you know, getting deeper into one thing and really, really running with that one thing. And that thing I chose that I wanted to um, go full time into was SF. And so from 2020, um, I had been working with SF as part of my portfolio in Ignata since 2017 anyway. And I could see so much opportunity. It was a business that I always felt, you know, had something special. If only I could give it enough of my time and attention to actually really unlock that. And so that's what I did. So January 2020, I went full time. Uh, I had a business plan ready, prepared of all the things we were going to do in 2020, which obviously I didn't get very far with. Um, Although we did actually achieve um, a couple of the things that we set out to do. Um, But with a couple of bumps in the road, you know, obviously, as most businesses had during COVID, um, we then actually ended up being able to implement that plan much, much faster than we expected in the end, because, of course, you know, as I'm sure with lots of businesses, COVID accelerated a lot of what we wanted to do anyway. So it all worked out fine in the end. But, yeah, it was definitely a, a slightly different start to the new role than I expected. And in that whole process, in that sort of, you know, stepping up from an area that you knew well to a bit of like what you touched on in the introduction to becoming a CFO without having an accountancy background and then becoming chief executive, were there any points on that journey where you thought, oh, hang on, am I, am I doing the right thing here? Did you have any doubts or did it just sort of flow seamlessly? Um, yeah, I mean, look, nothing, nothing in business or leadership ever flows seamlessly, as you know. But I think I've learned over the years to just really trust, trust my gut. 
Um, I'm quite a collaborative worker, so it's very rare that I'll go off and I'll make a decision without consulting anybody. So I think when you are coming into something new, when you're trying to feel your way into it and understand it, um, you always need that different perspective, don't you? That, you know, if I haven't been on the operational side of a business, of a certain type of business, then I need to go speak to the people that have. I need to go check my thinking. I need to go educate myself. I need to go test my my ideas. And I think the real skill of, of this is knowing when to trust your own gut and go against the grain versus when to listen. Because if you only ever listen to what others tell you, you'll only ever get the results that those people have, have ever got. You have to be able to bring something yourself. And so I think, you know, you get things wrong sometimes. Of, of course you do. You just have to be brave enough to know that, you know, if I'm constantly listening, I'm constantly open, I'm constantly educating myself. I'm not trying to go into an environment and think that I know it all. I'm just here to absorb and then reformulate into what I think is a good idea. I think that's what's given me the, the confidence to to make those decisions without without worrying that I'm doing the wrong thing because I'm I'm never ever really doing it alone. So now let's go back into a situation where no one knew it all. No one could possibly have known it all. Back into that COVID environment that you alluded to earlier. So we're at the beginning of 2020. You've got that that new business plan, that strategy ready to go. Got it all planned out. COVID hits, lockdowns all sorts of recruitment pieces put on hold. Am I right in thinking you also had your first son around that time as well? Yes, my son was born on the day that lockdown started. So we had a very busy March 2020 in our house. Um, It was three weeks early. Um, I think you kind of sensed there was some commotion going on outside and uh, wanted to come and see what it was all about. Um, So yeah, it was was, uh, was definitely a very, very different uh, first few months of the year than I thought it was going to be. So how did you find managing all those competing priorities? Um, It's funny, you know, when I look back, I sometimes wonder how on earth I did it. But I think, you know, I'm someone that's always been very good in a crisis. It's when my um, you know, forgive the phrase, but it kind of gets my juices flowing when there's, you know, something, you know, really heavy going on. And I think when when you're up against something, you, you just have to deal with it. You know, we were dealing with all of the repercussions for the business. We were dealing with, you know, is the government going to do something? Is there a furlough scheme? What does a furlough scheme mean? You know, all those very quick decisions that business leaders had to make. And then on the evening of the furlough scheme announced, me starting to think, you know, oh, I think I might be going into labor here. Um, and you just, you just do what you have to do. You know, there's a, there's a human instinct that kicks in to just, you know, survive, get through it, um, you know, do your very best. And I think it's only afterwards when it's all over that you can really sit back and think about what's happened, process it. Um, and you know, it, it, it highlights that when, you know, when the pressure's on and when crazy things happen, human beings really are capable of you know moving up to a different level and doing things that they never thought they were capable of and now of course you know it creates a lot of stress we don't want to be living like that every day um but I think in the moment I just didn't think about it I just I just got on with it all the thinking came once it was over and I could breathe a sigh of relief 
Well, speaking of breathing a sigh of relief, um, it hasn't actually slowed down much for the recruitment sector, has it? It has been an incredibly, we put, you know, COVID restrictions come to an end. And then all of a sudden, we see a huge boom in job adverts, the great resignation, all sorts of employers reporting recruitment difficulties. Uh, I imagine for your sector, it's been an incredibly busy time. Tell me a little bit about that over the last year. Yeah, I mean, it's been one of the most buoyant recruitment markets, I think, you know, most of us in the sector have, have ever known. And, you know, obviously the reasons for that are, are quite well publicised um, around, you know, all of the candidates that have gone missing from the market. I think one of the pieces that isn't as well publicised is actually um, the the new level of demandingness that has come from employees. You know, they they have more power and they're prepared to use it because the things that mattered before, the expectations about, you know, staying in a role or having tenure or, um, you know, kind of doing the daily grind, almost the the, the kind of pride that came with being somebody that, that had you know, a nine to five grind, that's all disappeared. And so people don't feel the same pressure to stay in a situation anymore. And I think even aside from the candidate shortages, there's a lot more churn in the market now because people just are are prepared to leave situations that they're not happy with in a way that they never were before. So I think that's really exacerbated the situation. And I think for us, you know, um, it's been a very, very busy couple of years. Um, You know, the recruitment sector is very buoyant right now, which obviously, you know, is great news for us. But I think, um, you know, we all have our own challenges as well. We've got to find talent too. Um, I always say it's a little bit like, you know, how they say that doctors are always unhealthy. Um, recruiters are never good at finding people for themselves because they're so focused on, you know, doing it for their clients. When do they find the time? And so, you know, we've had to work quite hard in our own business to, you know, really invest in extra infrastructure around bringing on new talent, um, onboarding, retaining those people, training those people. And I think there's there's quite a lot of work to do in just, you know, wider business at large to go through that cycle. You know, we're quite fortunate. We're a relatively small company, 100 heads. So for us to make that type of investment, we can do it quite quickly. We can be quite agile. But for businesses that have got thousands and thousands of people, that you know, that's going to take a good couple of years to really embed something like that. So, yes, it's been very busy. Um, I think next year is going to continue to you know see some of these similar trends, maybe not quite as busy with a recession, either you know already in, in train or, or on the way. Um, but, um, you know, it's no, it's no fun if it's quiet, is it? So uh, we're very happy. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about how you've approached that as an employer? Because uh, I keep seeing SF recruitment pop up in the news for things like uh, best companies, top 20 small companies. I think you went through a, an employee engagement cycle as well with your leadership team as shareholders and sort of profit share activity. Tell me a little bit more about how you've, how you've approached all that and what the sort of ethos is within SF recruitment. Yeah, um, I mean, in, in many ways, COVID, as I said earlier, it, it accelerated a lot of what we wanted to do. And my own approach, I think, because because I always go into every situation assuming I don't know anything about it, I, I go in very, very collaborative. You know, I want everybody around the table. I want everybody's ideas. I want I want a debate because that allows me to really tease out, you know, what's real here. So then the natural follow on from that is if that's how we're going to behave in running the business, well, then that's how we need to behave in in how we reward people. And that's how we need to behave in terms of um, the the way that we expect people to work with us. So that that, you know, kind of approach of treating everybody in the business like a grown up, everybody has a valid opinion. 
that feeds through to then the trust of saying, well, you know, we don't mind where you work. We don't mind when you work, as long as you're delivering. Um, we want you to be collaborative. We want you to be involved in the decision making. We want you to share in the profits. We want you to have a stake in this business. We want it to feel like yours. Um, and a lot of this stuff kind of happened organically just in the way we were running the business anyway. But once the initial, um, you know, kind of COVID rush was over and we'd got back to, you know, more normal point, the focus really, I mean, I, I probably spent about three months just thinking about nothing but how can we create an environment here that is the most brilliant place to work because we had this rare opportunity to you know rebuild the business in in the way that we wanted it to be really special and what what's always mattered to me is creating an environment where people want to get out of bed on a monday morning um, you know, my husband will always tut at me and say you know oh you enjoy your job so much and you know kind of almost feel a bit resentful about it and you know I, it sounds really really corny but I want everybody to feel that. I want everybody to, you know, I want people's other halves to be envious about how much they love their job and how much they enjoy going to work and how excited they are to get back to Monday morning. Um, I know I sound very, very sad saying that um, I jump out of bed on Monday mornings, but, you know, I, I do think that's something to aspire to. And so we just went about quite forensically thinking, well, what are the things that, that make people happy? You know, not everybody's the same. So we need to, we need to cover you know, a whole range of different categories of people, a whole range of stages of life, different personality types. How do we create an environment that 90% of people would be ecstatic to work in and would, and would love working in? And we just really forensically went through pay, um, flexibility, uh, engagement, and just, you know, set about picking every box as strongly and as well as we could. Um, and not ultimately, I think the things that make the difference, there's a lot of stuff that we've done, but the things that really, really make the difference are giving people a voice and giving people trust that that's what's, that's what's allowed us to do all of these things and win the awards that we have. Fantastic. So when you're thinking about advice for other businesses on recruiting and retaining talent, is that it voice and trust or are there other things that you'd go, actually, these are key things that we've seen work or things you'd recommend looking into? Yeah, I think, um, because a lot of businesses, a lot of our clients have approached us to say, um, particularly once we started winning awards for how we've done the flexibility, you know, just to kind of ask for some advice and you know support on on how to implement it. I think my own experience is that you can implement flexibility because it's relatively easy to make a decision about you know what employees can and can't do. But it doesn't really make a difference to people's engagement unless you back it up with the way that the business actually works. So what I mean by that is, you know, do people have IT that they can genuinely take anywhere that works anywhere? Does it only work when you're in the UK? Does it only work when you're in the office because it's got to be part of the network? Does it require you to log on to some remote thing so it doesn't work on the train or, you know, whatever? So, you know, is your IT supporting the, the decisions you've made about how you want people to work? Um, are your processes and your management structures supporting those or, you know, are all meetings only held in the office? Are um, meetings always held at 9am, which is prohibited for parents, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what I've seen a lot of um, examples of is businesses implementing things, but they're not going the next layer and making sure that the actual operations of the business support them. So, and, you know, we, we had to learn a few of those things ourselves. You, sometimes you, it doesn't happen because just nobody realizes 
Um, and it takes somebody to say, hang on a minute, you've told me I can come in at 10 o'clock, but why is this meeting at nine for someone to notice that, oh gosh, we've forgotten that one. And I think, you know, creating an environment where employees feel that they can also have a say and a voice in shaping what needs to change means that you obviously miss far fewer things than if you leave it, leave it entirely up to the management team to notice everything. Fantastic. So that's how you've been sort of sharing advice, sharing tips with some of the employers that you work with. But when you think back over your own career, are there any leaders or individuals that have inspired you or that you've looked up to or been mentored by along the way? Yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of people along the way who I've you know, taken things from. I think I've been quite lucky that at each, each stage in my career, there's always been someone that's taken me under their wing, um, you know, kind of shown me the ropes, been rooting for my success. And when I look back, you know, there's probably four or five people who, you know, all, all quite different characters, but all saw something in me and pushed me into these roles that I, you know, wasn't necessarily qualified for, but they believed that I could do them. And it's only been the last few years where I've really, you know, got to the stage of feeling like, um, you know, I'm going to push myself into things that are out of my comfort zone now. Um, it, it, it's almost embarrassing when I look back. I never once got a promotion because I asked for it. I always got them because people brought them to me. Um, and, you know, I'm constantly pushing my own people, you know, put yourself forward for things, um, look for opportunities, jump in with both feet. But I look back and, you know, that is easier said than done. I always waited for somebody to bring me something because, you know, you don't you don't want to be seen to be being you know arrogant or thinking that you should be doing something. Um, it's always you know more flattering if somebody comes and asks you, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm, I've definitely had you know more than a few people who've helped me along the way. Well, that leads me very neatly onto our final question, which is if you could share just one piece of advice for aspiring chief executives, what would it be? Um, yeah, I think um, it would be to be brave. Um, it, it's very easy to, you know, when things are going well, to fall into a rut or a comfort zone or to get complacent. And I think when I look back on all the times that there's been a step change, either in my personal career or in the business performance, it's always been prefaced with um, a brave, maybe slightly unconventional decision. So, of course, you know, sometimes those can go wrong, too. But, you know, if you don't if you don't try, then um, you, you never get anywhere. You've always got to break a few eggs to to make the omelette. So that, that would be my piece of advice. Be brave. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah, and for sharing your journey. It's been fascinating hearing how you've been brave along the way and uh, become chief executive of SF Recruitment. And thank you for all the advice you've shared throughout that journey too. Now, for those listening at home, do of course remember to subscribe to CEO Stories wherever you get your podcasts and keep on top of the latest from the Chamber via at GRBham Chambers on Twitter. Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce on LinkedIn. And of course, you can subscribe to our Chamberlink Daily Newsletter for the top local business news and views in the Greater Birmingham area.